Hello and welcome to the Nostalgia Podcast. A podcast where we discuss the retelling or continuation of pop culture favorites as seen through a queer and feminist lens. My name is Eric Lefebri. And my name is Jessica Tercero. And this week we are joined by one of my best friends, Tim Ward. Welcome to the program and the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Perfect. So we're going to just give you the mic for the rest for the next three hours and go for it. I've got this. The only weird thing is I won't have anybody to interrupt, but I've got this. Yeah, go. (laughs) Just go up. Okay. Well, this week we did a classic and a classic. Um, We decided to do The Shop Around the Corner and its remake, You've Got Mail. Which I didn't um, realize You've Got Mail was a remake of something. And then the further that we got into it, it was like, oh, it was originally a play in 1938. And then it was this movie. And then there was a musical. And then there was this. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, this movie just, like, to me, it didn't seem like classic remake material. So I wasn't expecting that from this. But um, what a It treat. really didn't. Yeah. It doesn't feel like one of those movies that's like, I mean, just because, again, there's not a movie called You've Got Mail. It is. They've changed the title. But even then, I was also surprised when I found out it was a remake because I'd never heard of Shop Around the Corner until like this year. Same. Or if I'd heard of it, I didn't like it didn't it never registered in my brain and I'd never seen it. So I was like, oh, well, whatever. But the fact and that they're essentially it's the same like story in a bunch of like top 100 lists and stuff. And I'm like, wait, really? I was looking up the Wikipedia for this and I was like, okay. Like, I mean, it's, it's cute, but like, I don't know if it's like that profound. So I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll change my mind famously like I do when we talk about it. But, um, I mean, cause I will say as soon as you were like, it's in a list of hundred best movies. I was like, oh yeah, I would believe that (laughs) just based on this one viewing. Um, I have a lot. I, yeah, I have a lot to say about it. Um, Tim, what is your history with shop around the corner as an idea, as a story, as an IP? For me, my experience largely was when I was watching it as a kid with my sister. Like, late at night, TCM, can't put it down, can't sleep anyway. Um, I would just, like, watch it over and over, probably. And then also, as I got older, I just really fell in love with the Judy Garland one, which is called The Good Old Summertime, and it's a musical. And that one, I sort of, like, switched gears and just started, like, watching that one more. So I was really excited to be able to revisit this original one because I had sort of put it to the side for probably 15 years. See? And then even the remake has a different name. So maybe this is why this is (laughs) such a sleeper, timeless story, right? Like... Wow, the plot thickens. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, every every version of this. Because then the original play was called The Parfumery. Oh, was it? Yeah, it wasn't called Shop <laughs> okay. Around the Corner. It was, like, I think it was just meant, like, store, perfume, or, like, like a like whatever. I don't know the translation, but, like, The Parfumery is the and name of the play. <laughs> I think this also, similar to how it, like, changes the name, and it changes maybe, like, the setting slightly and the characters slightly, but, like, it really is like a timeless kind of idea, right? Like the anonymity of, we'll, we'll get into all of it, but like, I think that's really even more interesting because it can, this is really a story you can project whatever um, story you want to tell onto this framework, right? Yeah. Um, similarly to you, I had not 
heard of Shop Around the Corner, I had, I mean, I lived through the 90s and early 2000s, <laughs> so You've Got Mail was very prominent, both the um, iconic You've Got Mail, but also like the movie. So that's all I knew about this, but I had no idea about anything else outside of like, this is a movie that exists. I have never seen it. The end. I mean, similarly, I've I've seen You've Got Mail uh, before. It is definitely one of those movies that I, I didn't see when it came out. I think I was a little too young. Mm. Um, but <laughs> then later and into like early adulthood, I watched it and I was like, oh, I get why this was like a hit. I get why it is fundamentally a romantic comedy. Like it is like one of the building blocks for the genre. Like this is what a romantic comedy looks like. Um, and obviously Nora Ephron, like that's bread and butter. That's the vibe that like we know that's like where she works. That's her wheelhouse, like upper middle class, white sort of snarky characters as a romantic comedic base, all of which live in like Greenwich Village or like wherever in New York. <laughs> like <laughs> that is where she shines. But either way, I didn't really have that history with this apart from seeing it once or twice and really enjoying it. And similarly, I'd never seen Chapter on the Corner. I'd hardly even heard of it. So this was like a really fun watch. This was like a fun start. This was fun to get into. Oh my gosh, are we ready? Should we just I dive think in? We're, I think we're ready. Let's do it. Alfred Kralik is the top salesman and oldest employee at a leather goods shop in Budapest called Matischek & Company, who finds himself enamored with an anonymous woman he's been corresponding with via mail. One day, recently unemployed Clara Novak walks into the shop determined to get a job. Despite Kralik's best efforts, Novak manages to charm the shop owner Hugo Matischek by selling one of the shop's more eccentric wares, and in turn is offered employment. Kralik and Novak's rivalry continue to grow over the coming weeks, as does Kralik's affection for his anonymous correspondent. Meanwhile, Mastercheck begins to suspect his wife of having an affair with Kralik, prompting their interactions to be strained. Bothered and unfazed by Mastercheck's odd behavior, Kralik finally decides to meet his mysterious recipient. However, on the night of his engagement, Mastercheck suddenly declares mandatory overtime for all the employees, which throws a wrench in both Kralik and Novak's plans for the evening, especially once Kralik finds out he's being fired. Unable to face his date, he convinces his co-worker to find out who she is for him and is shocked to find out it's Novak. He takes a seat next to her at the cafe and the two argue for a while before Kralik leaves and starts to rethink his life. Back at the shop, Matischek finds out his wife was cheating with a different employee, not Kralik, and attempts to unalive himself. Just before he succeeds, the shop errand boy stops him and takes him to the hospital. Unable to leave the hospital, Matischek rehires Kralik into the manager position and gives the errand boy the open clerk position. Delighted with his new role, Kralik begins to be kind to Novak while continuing to send the anonymous letters. Then, when they're alone together after the Christmas Eve rush, Kralik reveals his true identity to Novak, who is truly delighted to learn he is the one she's been corresponding with all along. Okay, right off the bat, I would like to say the sock garter moment is one of my favorite in all of cinematic history. And... I love everything about that. I love, I, I, they, I cannot express how much I love this. And they linger on that shot. Like, it's not they, just like a quick little cute, like, It's wink. like 45 seconds of film. <laughs> like, it like is, he's he like lifts it up and then kind of sits there and then it kind of goes down and then he lifts it up again. And it's like, what? Wait, what's happening? They got the shot. And, like, I don't. 
what's happening? <laughs> That's the climax instead of like a kiss or anything like in this, which I thought was really cute, especially for a romantic comedy, especially of the age, right? Instead of the kiss, it's like, well, do you wear sock gardens? He's like, oh my God, do I? Like, I don't have bow legs. Check me out. And I think it's also really cute because like generally, like when I think of garters, I think of like women in bourgeois situations and stuff so I'm like oh this is incredibly cute and I love this so much because we're sexualizing him and not so it, it just on all levels I love this yeah I I mean granted garters are very cute it's also just like it's just it's a funny moment to be like yeah I'm not bow-legged see it's just it's a cute way to kind of affirm both of their emotional yearnings a little bit where he gets to be a little bit performative silly she gets to make the little joke at his expense because they're both a little bit conniving especially when they're like at each other's throats they both have this edge to them and so to see them like kind of have that edge together but it's softened because they obviously know each other is who they are it's just like it's like the perfect way to close it out it's it's cute it's so cute Sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to start with the ending, but no, I had to. I, I mean, <laughs> and you were we were talking about earlier about how this was on a list of 100 best movies. And I will say, this movie is so charming. Uh, and it's so quick. Like, all of the dialogue, I was so impressed by. Off the bat, we're getting these characters. They're saying their names. I'm like, I know who these people are. The jokes are landing. The jokes are good. And it's not like bad it's not like it's not like jokes of the time where it would be like non-white people or women or whoever like there's no like real punching down here with a few very small exceptions it's like genuine fun little these little zingers and bits and like off the bat i was so intrigued and enthralled by like these characters who work at this little shop and this like shitty boss who is also the actor who played the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. Really? Yeah, he oh, played. Cool. Um, okay. This was, I think, he died maybe seven or eight years after this movie came out. Ooh. Um, so it was sort obviously towards the end of his life. But yeah, he was he he was the wizard in The Wizard of Oz, which uh, it was great. It's cool to see him because again, with a lot of these like older actors, because there is such a huge time difference, at least for me. I've never seen them in anything other than the thing that they're famous for. Right. So being able to see this actor be like, no, he was an actor and in so many different things. It was nice to see. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm into it. Yeah. And a lot of this movie really hit like you're talking about the dialogue and it was very it was very smart. And like you said, it wasn't really punching down or at least not punching down on Ed Woody that didn't deserve it. Like Mrs. Marstachek and um, the pretty boy that's like boning her. <laughs> like, Vada? What is his name? Vadis. 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 Okay. But yeah, so like when we're punching down at like this dopey dude and like and her, but it's like also very fun the way it's done, like where the owner of the shop is like, don't tell anybody like errand boy, um, Peppy. And he's like, oh, I won't tell anybody. And the wife calls and he just tells her off and like in front of all of the employees, he's like, hey, listen to this. <laughs> right. And I was like, this is so cute. And also like the commentary that it has on capitalism and on like CEOs and like bosses and things like that, I thought was so like just incredibly smart and perfect. And again, that really delighted me for especially like a film from the 40s. You know, Yeah. I mean, with that character, too, I made a I made a note just being like, oh, the gossip of this gay um, where like <laughs> immediately like. Oh, she's, she, you know, she looks, she looks 40. And he's like, oh, well, I think she looks good. They're like, no, 
I didn't say she looks bad. I'm telling you. And he's like, I'm, I'm just whatever. And it's like, yeah, the, the food was like, the food was good. Why? Oh, I, um, it's like, oh, so was a goose liver no good? No, I said it was good. I didn't say it was bad. Fucking stop. Like, you gossiping asshole. Like, stop twisting this shit. This is, you're such an asshole. Like, it was so funny and so sweet because they're all like, it's such an already built in character uh, element that, like, they're all so tired of, like, the gossiping and the twisting of the words. And I thought it was so fucking funny. I'm so into it right from the get go. I liked a lot of those like quick jokes of like on that car scene when they're getting out after or the next day following that dinner party when the driver comes out and goes, oh, I bet you're wondering how I got my new clothes or where I got these new clothes. <laughs> don't they look nice? And and the other guy's just like, no, I don't wonder. <laughs> I don't want to know. That's the end of it. I don't want to know. That's my favorite joke and that they do it pretty often. Like, want to hear a joke? No. Do you want to know how I got this? No. And like, what was it like? Oh, how much is that belt in the window? Oh, the one that says two ninety five, two ninety five. Oh no, that was so funny. <laughs> like that was so it's, good. It's so cute, and like to me, it's like more more nourishing humor because it is like situational, and it's like it feels like smarter, and then instead of just being like punch down shit, like it just felt good. It's like it felt in- like a store that I work in where I'm like, this, these are absolutely the people that I work around. This is absolutely the conversations that we have. This is absolutely how we respond to that one person. A hundred percent. That person is so annoying. Like it yeah. was a really cool characterization and you got everything like right off the bat, which was great. Yeah. Um, I will say I was so, uh, I did not expect the like death by suicide attempts. Uh, yeah. that like threw me so quickly because I was like oh he's obviously sad and he's just like he's just gonna get through it whatever and then he goes into his office and then you hear like the gunshot go off after he runs and I was like wait what <laughs> hold on like it just not that it felt out of place because I mean in context it like oh yeah like he's literally having the worst day of his life like I get this cool but just for that character because he did seem so chipper and I guess that that's like part of the conversation where like He's a little bit resolute. He's a little bit stalwart. He's a little bit like strong boss daddy, which cool. Um, but watching him like break in this moment was definitely, it's just, it was good. There's nothing about it that I was like, this is bad and you shouldn't show this at all. Cause it is like, it's a compelling component of the story. And like also knowing that like he was saved from that fate and suddenly the change of heart happens where it's like, I was so close to death. I don't feel that way anymore. And you know what? I should take a break. That's the <laughs> moment like, where yeah, he's, do it. He, he stops to take out his frustrations on his employees, which we absolutely see him do that, which again, very good characterization of just like a boss who also has so much fucking wealth. The point where he fires Krellick and he is like, oh, your whole month's salary, you're entitled to that. That's $200, right? And then his wife hits him up and is like, hey, I need $1,000 by tonight. And he's just like, okay, yeah, whatever. Like the wealth that this man has like is obviously boundless. And of course he can like afford a raise for these people. And of course he, you know, but like it, it, he doesn't have power at home, right? Like, so of course he tries to exercise what power that he feels like he has over his employees, right? So there's that power dynamic that, you know, is always unbalanced. Um, and 
the way that he also was seeking validation from Krellick, right? With like in every interaction, he's like, hey, look at these boxes I found. Do you like these boxes? Do you like these boxes? I mean, like, but tell me honestly, though. And he tells him honestly, and he's like, he doesn't know how to handle that. And I think that's part of why he like is so drawn to Krellick is because he's the one person in his life that tells him exactly what he's thinking and how he's feeling. And I really did feel for this character in a lot of ways because I thought, you know, because we saw all of these different sides to him and it's like, yeah, absolutely. This is, you know, he may be a good person, but he does have this like this wealth and he is in this position of power. So, of course, he's going to take that out on people when he has that change of heart, you know, after he tries to unalive himself and he realizes that his wife was cheating and, you know, this whole thing. He does start to realize his real family is his employees, which again, there's always going to be that um, that power structure. Like it's never going to be equal, right? But like he does start to try to actually invest in them, but he doesn't know how to do that other than buying them, right? Like here's money, here's this, here, do you want dinner? Let's go to dinner, let's do this, you know? So more than anything, I think I felt bad for him. I mean, he's rich, so I didn't feel that bad for him, but like I just thought but it was a really interesting way to portray a character like that yeah especially again the richness is like a huge component of this where it's he has everything and he's like so tight-fisted when it comes to like giving his money like for his wife obviously for his wife it's like oh here's a thousand whatever um but for his store it's like oh we can't sell that in this and i get that that's like business mentality whatever but watching him crumble and watching sort of that life sort of fall around him only to then discover the goodness of just like what he has yeah i mean also it's great it's gorgeous it's like he apologized which we like we rarely see people in that position of power do and it felt like a genuine apology he's like hey i'm sorry this is what happened this is 100 percent my fault here i want you to have a promotion i'm so sorry give yourself a raise you have that right now take care of these people i trust you like i was a fool like it felt like an honest apology and And, i think that that was really cool and the moment too which i also like later when he tries to come back into this capitalist mindset of like sell 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 the one moment he's like out of the hospital he's outside and to some passerbys is like oh wow can you tell me how much that briefcase is they're like oh 24 whatever he's like 24 whatever (laughs) That's a steal. I can't believe that. And they were like, you should know the prices of your own shit, dude. We know who you are and leaves. And he's like, oh, damn it. <laughs> but it's it's just like a fun, because he's trying to like fall back into the world uh, that was like unhealthy for him. This bad world of like capitalism and, and price and manipulation. And the f- one time he tries to do that after this journey style revitalization, it's shot back in his face. And he's like, wait, actually, yeah. I'm not going to keep trying this. And it's nice because as like a story beat, you're like, yeah, like don't let him fall back into that space. And he's like, oh, what am I doing? No, whatever. And I don't know if that's like super duper intentional apart from it just being a fun joke. But for this character, it feels so real. And so like, again, I'm going to use the word nourishing, but it felt very nourishing for me because it's like this feels so intentional. Like they know what this character is. He knows what's going on. I love this that he's not like. He's a good guy. And I like that we're seeing him even make these little mistakes after the fact. And it's like, oh, whatever. Like, he's still he's still good. Ugh. I um, That's one of my favorite jokes in the whole thing. Just it's the one that made me laugh aloud because it's just such a silly line where those two women are able to be like, 
Well, if you don't know the, if you can't answer that, I don't know who can. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just yeah. so silly. And it's like, it's such a great way of putting him back into his place. And uh, I do want to say like, well, two things. I love that scene where they're all going away for their Christmas dinner and each character gets to sort of be their sincere self. Like the other guy, I can't remember his name, the one who's been trying to dodge his dinner with his family. Of course, he's not going to have somebody over for Christmas. He just wants to be home alone with his wife. And like you see him kind of fumbling through trying to like make sense of the new world he's found himself in and flailing. But the other thing I want to say is he's got a temper. The way that people would run from him, like he's nice, he's a good person, he's trying, but <laughs> I'm not going to, you're not going to find me hanging out with him. I'm sorry. Yeah. Also, <laughs> the oh my joke. Gosh, that was so funny. Like literally every he time he asked, he asked for an opinion and uh, Petrovich, is that his name? He like immediately yeah. is like, whoop. And Every, he, he like runs up the stairs, hides behind like displays. They do it so like silly. ten times too, yes. to the point where the last beat of that joke is you see his foot step on the top step on top of frame, and he's like, "Can I get your?" And then the foot just disappears again. <laughs> like it's such a good bit. And like yeah. I thought after the third one, I was like, "Okay, I get it." But by that last one with the step and then the out, I was like, "Genius! That's so fucking funny." That's so funny. Even Clara is like in the glass case trying to organize everything. There's so much body <laughs> comedy with it. Yeah. And it's true that like he is ultimately I like his journey again. Like he does sort of realize the importance of kindness and empathy. And I mean, again, we see that at the end with um, who's the new page boy. What was his name? Pit. Rudy with the, with the new, the new, oh, the, the young new kid, one. the Got 17 it. year old yeah. at the end when he like, he doesn't really have anybody anymore everything that he's built is gone and there's this like young optimistic kid who's like just excited and happy to be there and he's like "Mm, fuck it like are you hungry oh you don't have family here like you're here by yourself he's like yeah it's like oh i'm cooking some crazy fucking meal are you hungry like (laughs) that sounds amazing he's like great let's go like whereas before like that would be unheard of like getting a dinner with this man is impossible like You'd never ask for that. And if he invited you, like, what a delight. And especially for somebody, like like you said, Tim, who's so hot headed, like he is so temperamental and he's such and like egregious, stubborn man who is so quick to anger and is so like frustratingly a man, (laughs) like in all (laughs) senses of the word in this world, like everyone has to like literally tiptoe around him so he doesn't get mad. Obviously, with the exception of what's his name, because he's like a son to him. Um, it's just great to watch that melt away from this character by the end. Well, know? and the performativeness of him in the beginning, too, right? Like, you know, like you were saying, like everybody that likes him or, you know, that he thinks that he likes and he doesn't like really care about. He's like, oh, I don't need your approval. You know, you already tell me you like me and stuff. But Krellick, him being like, you know, like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. Because he doesn't have that approval, he goes out of his way to seek it. He goes out of his way to invite him to dinner to his house to do all of these things that anybody would feel more than lucky or happy to do because, like, I mean, they probably eat way better than anybody there, right? So anybody would love to be in that position. And, like, here he's only showing that kindness to the one person that he thinks that doesn't like him, the one person that he thinks that he does have to impress in order to get his approval, right? (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I do want to pivot and talk a little bit more about Clara and Krellick and their like dynamic, their relationship. I think just as it pertains to like 
it's reflection to you've got mail. Um, and I, I mean, I want to talk about that later, like when we get to it, but I love this very clear, like in person, she is so well written to the point where like, she sets boundaries so well with him yeah. where like something's happening and she's like, you know what? I actually don't want to argue. So we should stop talking. Like we're not communicating well. You know that I know that we should stop. And then the moments that they do go that far, it's like, oh, God, you're so whatever. And it's just she's so such a charming character that seeing her own that autonomy in this space, it's so just like, especially for the time, like she's not some like hopeless girl who minces her words. She's like, nope. <laughs> like This is post-Hayes Code, right? Where like, yeah. hey, like before the Hayes Code, we had like incredible women like this in cinema all the time but now we have 40s this is post Hayes code this is our during Hayes code actually sorry so like to have such a strong character i think is really cool but i do think that um the line that she says later where she talks about oh i had a crush on you like at the very end right she says the reason i treated you bad is because i read a book and i thought i put myself there and i was like well she's mean to everybody and she gets the guy so maybe i should do that so i was mean to you because of that so like i feel like that line is an afterthought and not really meant to be anything or there because yes. again of where the time is and they had to stick that line in there to make the critics happy so that way this movie would actually like be able to be released uh, but does, that, to me because yeah. like she never really changes like you were saying she's so strong she's so autonomous she the way that she treats him doesn't really change it maybe starts to change once he's actually being nice to her and starts to see her as a person which i think is another really great conversation in this one and in the next one where we're assholes to each other but like really when you actually get to know somebody and understand them on a fundamental level like there is connection and just be kind because you never know what somebody else is going through because like we're all people we can all relate like I don't know I love that um also I just watched um everything everywhere all at once and that ties into that so we stand that movie here on this podcast too <laughs> um but like yeah so she never really deviates from that characterization so like when she said that I was like this was a forced line because she never yeah. changes who she is. Yeah, it does feel like it delegitimizes her character. Yeah. I like what you were saying about Mr. Matichek seeking validation from Kralik. I like that parallel that you brought up because I feel like Clara or Clara preys on his insecurities so well. You're so like right. Like she can cut to the bone and he is so wounded about ideas about like when she tells him like something like you're just a clerk that like <laughs> totally wilts him yeah. and he just falls to the ground. And, but I, I, when you said that, I was like, Oh, there's a parallel there because that power dynamic is very similar. You're so right. I didn't even realize that, but you're a hundred percent right. The one person that he needs the approval from is the one person that doesn't like him. Oh, this is such a man thing. This is a man thing, right? <laughs> yes. One hundred percent. Also, speaking of man things, the big question that I wanted to ask everyone here, how do we feel about the plot in general, right? Like, I think I had a bigger, like, big red flag moment in the next one. But the moment yeah. he realizes that she is his pen pal and he continues to hide the fact in order to, like, 
coaxed and coerced and like kind of like not in anything like devastating, but like manipulate her manipulative in these in these moments. And I mean, at the end of the day, that being the crux of like the sort of like, oh, romance, like accident, whatever, however charming it may feel on the surface without really like diving into like what's actually happening. Um, that whole bit is like really bad, right? Like and, as right. an idea, yes. it's really bad. <laughs> so that is why this movie for me is not on the top 100 lists or anything. Yeah. Um, this movie is charming and it does have really good things. I do want to talk about Clara a little bit more. I do want to talk about, you know, um, a couple of other things. But overall, when the foundation is predatory, because like, I mean, uh, for those of you that don't know or have not seen it, Kralik is a pen pal with uh, Novak, but they don't know that they're pen pals because they're anonymous, anonymous, I can say that word, anonymous pen pals. And they talk about life and culture and all of these things, right? And like things that you wouldn't be able to say to like one of your friends because you're too close. I mean, like sometimes, you know, we have weird, strange relationships like that, I guess. But like, the anonymity of it like allows them to maybe be more their true selves which is also like weird and I'm excited to talk about that especially with the next one and especially like you know tying that into like social media and everything but yeah um it is so predatory because he finds out that it's her and then he in both movies they do this where he makes the friend or whoever's there check who it who she is asks what she looks like when he's like oh it doesn't matter but what does she look like is she fat is she this is she that right because obviously if if she's fat if she's this like then i'm not even gonna entertain this even though i said that i'm going to but oh great she's pretty excellent oh wait it's somebody i know well i don't know about that but the fact that he doesn't fess up and he just perpetuates the the lie and while having like insider information about her and uses that to her and his advantage to where like now he's getting a wallet for Christmas like it it felt really gross and really icky and really manipulative and I was honestly furious that both women still went for him and went for that especially in the second one like you're in my bedroom what the fuck are you doing in my bedroom get the fuck out of here like i don't want you here i don't want you anywhere i'm sorry that you lost your job but um and like it literally takes the the fact that this dude now sees her as a potential mate in order for him to be nice to her and give her a day off and to start treating her like a fucking human being because if none of that existed he as the new manager would have fired her so like i have a really big problem yeah it's a part of the story in general no matter what iteration it is that despite what is supposed to be like deemed just like circumstantial comedy is still really fucking gross. But <laughs> like, Eric, this is what we as women are told is supposed to be charming and fun. And this is the like, kind of story <sighs> that we're supposed to want and how we want people to act and perceive us. Like, this is one of those things where I'm like, this is a problem. Yeah, it's a huge problem. Ultimately, the moment that he finds out it's her and continues to keep his anonymity and use the anonymity to his advantage to then manipulate her actions, like... I don't mean to use this word in like this way, but that's psychotic. That's like absolutely wild. That's like so emotionally abusive. 
like disclose the information. You know it's her. Either distance yourself and disconnect or reveal the information that like, hey, this thing that we knew mutually was anonymous. I now know who you are and you are this person who I know in real life. Um, you know we what, should Eric? confront this or figure it out. What you call emotionally abusive, somebody else calls romance. So yeah. rough stuff. Um, going back to your comment about him being insecure and describing what if she's a cow? What if she's old? What if she's fat? Like just an aside, fuck that waiter. But um, <laughs> literally he then once he knows who she is and he's manipulated her, manipulating her, the climax of that manipulation is him projecting those same insecurities onto her. Oh, I saw him. And what was the name? Like puppy whistle or something like that. Like, Oh, he's bald. You know, if you don't mind not having a head full head of hair, that's fine. Or, oh, can you support him on your salary? Like he, all he's doing is, is putting that on her. And, um, yes. and I, and I definitely hope that we have a moment to talk about, the way that um, toxic male behavior is perpetuated in this film because Peppy's not innocent. Oh, oh Peppy <laughs> is a little shit. He's... Like, because the second that he gets an ounce of power, like, he's just shitting all over the errand boy. And I'm like, this is not cute. And a lot of his behavior is really shitty and really bad. It's also learned behavior. It's learned behavior and it's played for laughs. So it's supposed to be ex- expected, right? Like that, yeah. oh, well, you have to earn your keep. You have to do all this. Again, another bad um, learned behavior that we also learned from movies. Hello. Yeah, you're so right. You're absolutely right. And again, why I kind of go back to what's his name as like, I really like his arc because he's the only arguably the only one who learns and grows genuinely it seems in this movie like he is that monster capitalist with power in this rich rich man and he then gets knocked down and realizes that like wait no none of that matters people matter and the way you treat people matters and the way you exist around other people matters whilst everyone else vies for that powerful spot whether it's Kralik who now knows he has the power over this woman that he's falling in love with and can use that power to coax her into a relationship whether it's Pepe Pepe. who then uh, he's now up one level and he has somebody to shit on and somebody to like whatever he's 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 seeing where he lies on the rungs of uh, within the rungs of power and now he's using that uh, platform to his advantage all of these men like level up in the patriarchal dominance uh, circus that's happening here. And the only one who doesn't is uh, Mariszczak, who just decides to, like, be out of the game. Like, I feel like he, like, resigns himself from the game to some degree. Again, it's not, like, a complete change, but there is the level of, like, I don't want that anymore. Like, Well, and how weird is it that we got like the most character development for like one of the side characters who like he was in 
half of the movie, right? And like he had more autonomy than everybody because like even though Clara is like really cool and like, you know, she like right off the bat is like, you're not going to tell me, I'm going to tell you, this is how it's going to go. Her autonomy is fucking taken away in the middle of it because Kralik has this unfair predatory advantage over here, both as her boss and as like because he has this no- like intimate knowledge of her that he's also not sharing and he's playing both sides and it's really a big fucking problem. So yeah, yeah. like all of my notes are mostly for Medicek. And I love that character. I love all of that. But I just, I, it felt very much like here is the woman in this story. Look at, she's strong. She's brave. She's all of these things. But even though you're showing us a strong, brave woman, you're still showing us more of the harm that men are causing and more of the predatory ways that they are acting, you know, and, and um, existing in the world. So even this woman that feels like she has the most autonomy and feels like she's getting somewhere and she finally found an honest man, she, you know, through anonymity and all of this, like, great, he's not going to want me for my looks or for my money or for my family or for none of this, right? It's just incredibly sad because even in her power, she has no power. Yeah. Um, Um, No, you go, Tim. You say it. What were you going to say? Oh, I just want to say sometimes when I go to the subtext, I go to the text and there were a lot of like literary books. One was super confusing. Maybe you guys will have some insight, but like she's sitting in the cafe with Tolstoy and a flower, a carnation, I think. And then the waiter comes along and is like, last month there was a gardenia. And then, you know, and then he implies that another guy walked in and there was a gardenia on the floor and she wasn't pretty enough. And also... Gardenias are such a delicate flower. This is what drove me nuts. Of all the things, this is what drove me nuts. <laughs> Gardenias need water. They're delicate. They're not going to last outside of water for like half an hour. And so the idea that people would be sitting in a coffee or a coffee shop or a cafe with that, just, I don't know why that, that drove me nuts. But. <laughs> You're like, that flower would not be on the fucking floor. It would be dust, you moron. <laughs> gone, gone. How dare um, you? <laughs> that is an ephemeral, delicate, pretty thing. It's fragrant. Anyway, um. But the other books that they brought up, <laughs> I'm back. I'm so sorry. That's so funny. Oh, this is my favorite quote of the pod so far. Like, they also bring up Madame Bovary. When he's, like, kind of jilted, he's like, what about Madame Bovary? And then misquotes Flaubert. I can't remember who the right author or the wrong author was. But it's, like, kind of like you're going to be lonely and dissatisfied in your relationships. And he knows why. Because he knows that he's the one that she loves and he's like well i'm out i'm gonna screw you up and then the other one is like crime and punishment i don't get that reference yes okay i was like why that book why are we talking yeah about that? okay what is that even about i mean probably crime and punishment so but i know that um <laughs> the main character Rushkulnikov, is like this guy who um i was really trying to figure out the answer here um he basically justifies he, he by greatness like you know the idea of the the good of an outcome can outweigh the evil that is done is his whole thing so great people can do bad things so and then he decides of course he's great and so he can murder somebody how and, fun that that's what he references because he literally has been awful to her but oh my god i'm such a good guy though i'm such a good guy like you're gonna see that i'm a good guy he has a history of being a good guy so he can do this one bad manipulative thing in order for her to see 
his greatness and, and his goodness. Is that be I'm bad assuming bef- that's it? And be I bad mean, beforehand, be right? Because he treated her like shit. <laughs> you yeah. know, he's like, I mean, they were both like, I think you're awful. I think you're the worst person. Like, they dig into each other. They had so much chemistry. They dig into each other so well. So, yeah, I think it's both um, Eric. I think it's like the meanness that he exuded before. And also, I'm going to do this one bad thing, but it's going to be fine and it's going to be great in the end. So yeah. it's fine because it's like absolving him of read. that. Uh, I do also want to bring up Vadis a little bit. Just in terms, and I want to get your guys' read on this, is he supposed to be unassuming because he's a little bit femme? Is that like the purported caricature or the character Which idea? Which character was that? He was the one who was having the affair with uh, Mattis Chick's uh, wife. The one um, who wanted diamonds, and he just wants to be kept femme. Like, yeah. there, there is sort of a femme quality to this man in a way mm. that just feels like a little bit like... And I mean these words with all of the queer context that they bring. He's a little flouncy. He's a little limbrist. Like there's a little, he's a little, he's a little gay. And like, that's the deal. I mean, that's at least my read on it. So then later when it's like, oh fuck, it was Vadis. They're like, what? He's a fag. Like, you know what I mean? Like it can't be him. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's like the, the jest or that's like, for me, that felt like the implied, like, <gasps> That was the reveal was like, wait, he was like a little feminine. He's having sex with women. But I wanted to get your guys' read on it. Um, so I felt, I mean, for me, I'm like, of course, this person is queer, right? Of course. That's but, what it felt like. Um, yeah. Again, knowing the time that this came out, I was like, okay, did they throw in that he's fucking the wife? So that way it's like, hey, look, not gay. But also, even if he is queer by the by the Hayes Code, he cannot you cannot get ahead. You cannot benefit. You have to be punished, right? Yeah. So that would also be in line with that too. Which, so. and, I, and I wouldn't assume that this movie or, or this time would be progressive enough to include a bi character or a pan character by any means. This movie is dealing in clear, explicit binaries. So I wouldn't assume that at all, which is why it felt more like a, oh, he's gay, but he's not. And I think you're 100% yeah. right probably that like it is a Hayes Code situation where like, let's convict the femme character a little bit. Like, let's make sure the character who felt gay is punished for wrongdoing, no matter how we have to spin it. Yeah, my read what... is... Oh, sorry. No, you go. I, I was saying nothing but hearing my own no. voice. So <laughs> My you... read is that he... Um, is that, yeah, he loves money, and I feel like that's his driving force. He's going to sleep with her to get it. But I also think that maybe I saw him at Buena Vista Park last Saturday night. Literally. Like, <laughs> he was crew. Like, you've seen him. You. Yeah. Y- yeah. So that's that's the vibe for sure. And it did feel a little like, oh. Mwah. For as whatever as this movie is, I was definitely like, oh, okay. Like, it feels a little yeah. diminishing or dismissive. Um, which I wouldn't necessarily expect them to be incredibly queer forward, especially for the way they treat women, especially for like this movie. But I just wanted to make sure I wasn't necessarily reading too far into something that wasn't there. I do want to say though, for somebody who loves money as much as he does, and for somebody that is coded queer, because I think maybe he is, the bills in his wallet were so crinkled they were so out of order when he goes to tip the taxi cab driver 
it's like okay clearly you're you're not like the one paying your bills because you haven't opened that wallet in a minute i mean to be fair i would also like a daddy so yeah whoever's feeding that wallet props and i mean <laughs> apparently uh it was a mommy and not a daddy so congrats to this man Kathleen Kelly owns a children's bookstore in New York called Shop Around the Corner. Joe Fox owns a conglomerate book superstore trying to break into the same part of New York. Each of them are totally enamored with an anonymous person they've been corresponding with via email who just so happens to be each other. One day, Joe walks into Kelly's shop while babysitting his brother and aunt and finds himself instantly enamored with Kelly. His hopes are dashed as it sets in that she is the small business owner he's going to put out of business and quickly tries to hide his identity. However, his cover is blown later at a fancy book party where the two run into each other with their significant others. Over the next few weeks, Fox and Kelly's rivalry continues to grow, as does their affection for their anonymous correspondent. Distraught at the very real possibility she'll need to close her business, Kelly asks her mysterious pen pal to meet up to help her come up with a game plan. Fox is stoked. However, on the night of their engagement, Fox convinces his co-worker to find out her identity for him and is shocked to find out it's Kelly. He takes a seat next to her at the cafe and the two argue for a while before Fox leaves and starts to rethink his life and vice versa. They both break it off with their longtime partners and Kelly sadly closes her shop. Fox begins to be kind to Kelly and the two become friends, all the while still continuing to send anonymous emails. The anonymous pen pals decide to meet. Fox confesses his love for Kelly as Fox, then reveals his true identity as NY152 and professes his love for her again. Kelly is truly delighted to learn he is the one she's been corresponding with all along. Okay, first and foremost, this cast... Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Greg Kinnear, Parker Posey, Gene Stapleton, Posey! C- Steve Zahn, and Heather, all you need is a light jacket burns. Are you Thank serious? You. Thank you. I was like, Miss Rhode Island is in this? Miss, Miss Rhode Island. Rhode is in this. Island. <laughs> she, okay, stacked. And, um, Fucking what's his name from Mindy, the Mindy Project and several other things is the guy selling the kids books. He has like a big part. He has like one line when he's like 17 in this film, which is also just like, damn, there's so many people. Obviously, Dave Chappelle's in it. That was when he was on the rise. Fuck Dave Chappelle. But I had no idea Dave Chappelle was a co-star of this. Like or that he was like he's Tom Hanks is like friend. Like I'm just I was so shocked. Same with Steve Zahn. Like obviously it's a young Steve Zahn, but like. Boy, oh boy, is that man cute. And same with Greg Kinnear. It's like silly how handsome these guys are. Okay. Mm -hmm. Can I start by saying this movie literally opens up and tells you exactly what's going to happen in this movie. So Joe Fox is talking to Dave Chappelle. I did not get his name because I did not care. Um, (laughs) And he was also barely in the movie. um, Where... Fox says people will hate us, but we'll get them in the end, right? Referring to his bookstore coming into New York and being a superstore and the community will maybe not love us at first, but they're going to like us and it's going to be fine and we're going to be here. And that's exactly what happens between him and Kelly, where she hates him at first, but he got her in the end. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Remember this. I like Um, that. I, I also, just to mirror that, if it's okay, I just, there's this huge focus on corporations as the primary villain at this time. This being like, you know, 
maybe before 9-11, where all of a sudden it was like terrorism in countries. This is when everybody's freaking out about Starbucks being on the rise and Barnes and Noble yeah. is actually a huge villain. And so the idea of like, yeah, the Soviet Union collapsed, then there's like, everybody's all happy, but, and with this like new wave of globalization. And then all of a sudden you think, oh, well, maybe Walmart's not doing such a great thing. And so that's when like the narrative in movies really started shifting towards like, hey, this is the big bad. And I thought it was really interesting that in the end, we actually did love them. Yeah, that yeah. was, I think that was interesting and a little bit weird because there was this moment where Kelly closes her shop and she like goes to this, you know, Fox and Sons store, right? And it starts to feel like closure where she closes the thing. She's like, I'm going to have to close. Everybody's telling her, hey, it's going to be fine. This is, you know, it's actually really brave to admit when you need to close or when you need to make a change. And now you get to like live for yourself. And to me, like there was this moment where I was like, oh, okay, is this a good thing? Because it felt like now she doesn't have to live out her mom's dream. Now she doesn't have to like, you know, have a daughter to pass this bookstore on where she's like finally going to start reaching out for herself. And she's like grappling and having this conversation with herself. So she goes into Fox and Sons, presumably for the first time. Right. And there's a moment where I was like, OK, is she like thinking this is cool and this is good because like she's just kind of like, oh, yeah, whatever. And she like cries. But like, it, it was weird because then it's like, oh, no, this is still bad. This is still the enemy. This is still that. And, like, I feel like that's a cool idea to be, like, you know, she doesn't have to, like, she can go be her own person and do what she wants now. I love that. And if she's, like, you know, is this a good, is this bookstore good? If she's questioning that, that's great. But I would have liked to see a little bit more development around both of those ideas because, in the last one, we got a lot of character development for somebody. And in this one, we didn't really get a lot of character development for anybody, I feel. And I would have liked to see, especially Kelly, where we're centering her right off the bat in this movie. And she is very much like such a participant in this movie, whereas I don't feel um, Novak was in the last one. I would have liked to see more development of those kinds of ideas and of the complexities around what she's feeling. And I also would have really liked her to not let Fox in the door and not let him like come anywhere near her because he literally like forced her to close and all of these people don't have jobs anymore. And like there was a moment where we're talking about the harm that he's causing and that he's causing to the neighborhood. But like ultimately we don't talk like that doesn't pay off and we don't go anywhere with that this is where i feel like nora efron really just like like her signature where there is like this this like really brutal subtext of like oh maybe the lower class is bad and maybe it is good to be a millionaire maybe maybe the smartest people are the rich people have we thought of that like i feel like that's like a lot of where she's coming from just and it's never text it's never like this overt whatever but because she's like writing and directing from like lived experiences of like upper middle class lower upper class experiences especially in metropolitan city like in like big cities i.e new york there is that level of like I felt it so much, and especially with this viewing of like, yeah, maybe like being a millionaire conglomerate son of a corporate billionaire is like a really What's romantic thing, possibly. Maybe it's like a, a good thing, and maybe maybe that's just life. And you're just like, wait, well, like I know that that's not like the intended, but I feel like it's like 
imbued in this. Like it's like I, I want to yeah. argue that it is not only intentional, but that Nora Ephron fought for it. She, this is this is my thing. This is okay. Spill it. Go <laughs> back to the subtext, which is the text chain. When she goes, when Meg Ryan goes into the coffee shop and she sits down, she's got Pride and Prejudice. Now I'm thinking this movie did not age well in 60 years when it comes to gender roles and gender dynamics and power things. And she brought in a lot of Jane Austen's tricks, which are still celebrated, even though it's a book that's like 150 years older than the first movie that we were talking about. Because a lot of those things with Mr. Darcy being like really wealthy and fixing the problems and making that story big happy ending happen through secrecy and through a little bit of manipulation, it was done in a way that we love. We thirst for it. We want that. This is and, romance. Um, we want the power of wealth. Yes. And we yes. want it to benefit and, us without really, you know, feeling icky about it. Because even though her shit closed and she's now autonomous, able to find this life, that life is with the man with the power and the man with the millions of dollars and the many boats. It's with the man with the boats. Like, she is going to inherit this wealth. Like, so maybe it is a good thing. Maybe it is positive because maybe you will end up rich regardless and you will have a good life. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> 100%. It's so funny and so like base level. I do really love this movie overall. Obviously, we're going to get into more of this stuff, but it is like reeking of privilege and like whiteness. It's like the whitest privileged like, ugh. Whatever. <laughs> um, so I want to piggyback off of the story that Tim was talking about, because as a woman, you hear a lot about Jane Austen and you hear a lot about Pride and Prejudice and you hear a lot about these stories that are so inherent to being a woman. Right. And I want to say that I have never read Jane Austen. I have never what? read any of her works. And I don't know if. I boycotted them, subconsciously boycotted or avoided them. I don't even think I've seen Pride and Prejudice or any of the film versions of her novels. So I don't know if like I just subconsciously am like people say that I'm a woman and I have to watch this. So fuck that because I'm, <laughs> again, worried about these kind of like problematic tropes, right? And you were talking about like these power dynamics and these like, you know, Mr. Darcy, people talk about that. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. But from what I'm hearing, it doesn't sound good. And it sounds super regressive. And it, I just want us to get to a point to where we're not referencing this 150 year old media because it's problematic or because, you know, like this is the apex of romance. This is the apex of, you know, what you should want as a woman, blah, 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 blah. I want to... I want to move past that. And if somebody is going to retell these stories, this is why I get excited, especially like having now done over 70 episodes of this podcast where I'm like, people can retell these stories because there is good stuff there, but let's retell it for our time. Let's let's reclaim yeah. this. Um, in You've Got Mail, is it all right if I'm going back to You've Got Mail? Yes. No, we're done talking about You've Got Mail, Tim. <laughs> oh, good. Cool. Jane Austen Jane only Austin. at this point. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> 
Pride and Prejudice, actually, Elizabeth Bennett is the main protagonist, and she has four sisters. Um, one of them she gets along with really well. One of them is the nerdy one that's never going to get married. She's like the stereotypical aunt. And then she has two younger sisters who are a little bit like loose and they're chasing sailors as opposed to finding a respectable man. Please know that I'm saying this in a tongue in cheek way. Yes. But the whole honestly, me. Of- <laughs> <laughs> this this allows, allows Elizabeth to kind of like be in the middle where she can act with some agency with her intentions and with her, I guess, so that she can act on her own in a way that allows us to look at other characters as being more polarizing than she is. Like, oh, well, she may have done this, but look at that other sister. She like just ran off and chased Mr. Wickham. I hope that wasn't a spoiler to anybody. But <laughs> um, to bring it back to You've Got Mail, uh, one thing that Nora did was that, because we're on first name basis, now, uh, Nora Ephron, she took those two characters that don't like each other and put them both in relationships. And we think of them as going, oh yeah, of course they're together. They're so similar. They're so similar because, because one of them is a, a farther caricature of who they are and a reason why they don't work is because they're too extreme in one direction. And it allows Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks to be shitty towards one another in a way that's more forgivable because Parker Posey is just really intolerable. And, you know, that guy talks about being a Luddite, but he has an addiction to electric typewriters. So you see the falsehoods that they both live in, which allows us to soften the two protagonists. And I think that's a totally Jane Austen move. That's super interesting. Okay. I love Uh, that because you probably have convinced me to read Jane Austen. You're such an influencer. I love this. Um, but <laughs> well, no, that's that, that's really smart. Yeah. That's actually absolutely correct. That was also a mechanic in this movie that I thought worked really well. Like, I was so impressed with the Parker Posey, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Greg Kinnear, like the dichotomy where it's like, and two, to be fully fair, like the breakup scene between Meg Ryan and Greg Kinnear. I love I'm obsessed. That. I was obsessed. Where he's, where he's just like, I, whatever. She's like, wait are you not in love with me? And he's like, no. She's like, that is so good because me neither. He's like, are you serious? She's like, yes. It's like, oh, yes. okay. And they talk about well, like, great. <laughs> is there somebody else? What are you doing? And like, I love, because a lot of the time <sighs> when we see like a breakup, it's always like bad or it's always like, you know, there's always one person that's like a villain or like that's not in the joke. But in this one, like it was really refreshing for everybody to be like just like oh yeah no not me either oh okay cool so like are you seeing anybody oh my gosh this is so cool and then like suddenly it it's it's friends they're fine you can have good breakups like i was obsessed yeah it's yes. really refreshing and cool and kind and it's just it's it's one of the moments that really works for me in this and again also i do think parker posey's performance is so good because she's a she's very charming and like cool but then she's also like incredibly ridiculously mean and like really gross at times and you're like oh she's like she's wild and i mean parker posey's so good at being wild like she's so good at it and also so she's her, so yeah. she knows exactly what is happening and what she's doing what where yeah. she's not willing to like have these conversations with herself or pass judgment on herself she's passing all of the judgment on uh tom hanks where she's like oh you just ruined that woman's life like you just put her out of business how do you feel <laughs> well i'm going to make her a child's editor what are you gonna do you just like destroyed her 
which which I, is, love to it. Be fi- I like how she's she's so relentlessly honest no matter if that's a bad thing with her like when she's feeling mad and angry she's going to let it let loose on everybody preferably poor people no matter what uh when she's like i really liked your thing here's what i liked about it and i want to tell you exactly what it's about and why i love it and why i like you and why i think you're great and then like oh yeah you ruined her life you know that right you know that you and i both know you ruined her life great cool so you're fine with it yeah me too i don't really like there's a level of just like constant Mm -hmm. presentness that she carries with her where everything is so matter of fact even to the detriment of like goodness or kindness like because she's not necessarily a kind person but she is a very pragmatic person and i think that that's like especially with parker posey she's just like she's so good at that role Ugh. in my opinion it's the perfect thing because she can be the mouthpiece for the vile things that are happening in that environment and i think that nora efren then is free to take tom hanks and have most of his scenes with family you get to see yes. the soft parts of him and he gets to only be the soft parts. And you never question why they're in a relationship. He does terrible things as a corporate person. She says the bad things. And, you know, he, he's the one that's like, I'll take care of the kids. I'll save you when you're in a cash only aisle. Like he, it gives him a lot of freedom as a character. He- and yes. we don't really see like, you know, other than like a couple of scenes in that the boardroom in the beginning and maybe like one like when his dad is like, oh, no, sorry, they had boats parked next to each other. <laughs> Bachelors. But yeah. um, like at the very beginning, it's like he's a CEO. He's an important person. He's actually he has a an actual hand in, in what's happening. We don't see him in that role other than that like then he's just like oh i'm just joe taking the kids out oh well i'm just joe at my at my house with my dog like it is really easy for us to like pull that back like oh this is what he is but like he's he doesn't actually do that he's he's not actually that person and i love and hate that same (laughs) because i think it's smart yeah it is i i agree i love and i hate it because i love it because it works really well in making this otherwise unlikable man likable tim i think you hit it directly on the head like she is the mouthpiece for all that is vile he gets to be the sweet earnest empathy forward family man who is caring and considerate when in fact he's literally in a role that's there to fire to destroy people to like to add like he is literally just there to destroy destroy everything that shop around the corner stands for the thing for me that was like oh maybe he is a good person or does have that goodness within him was the apology because I think his apology that he wrote as uh, 157 New York or whatever, right, was incredible because he started to write like, well, um, here's all of my excuses. And then he's like, oh, well, you shouldn't have. Uh, oh, wait, hold on. And he brought it all back. And he said, I'm sorry that I put you in a situation where you were caused more pain. Don't worry about what was said. You were expecting to see someone you trusted and met the enemy instead. So in that apology, he literally took all of the onerous of that. And he said, the exact right thing. And I never expected a film from the 90s to have such a thoughtful apology, but that is absolutely how you apologize. Like, for real, this movie's so charming. And like, I mean, let's just talk about it then. The fact of the matter is, of him still being a manipulative person is still very there. It's the hugest part of the movie that makes it what it is. Um, 
it's still just as if not worse than the first one in this way where like not only does he see her and then start manipulating her but after he ruins her life he then befriends her and on the day that she's supposed to go meet the man that she's in love with he tries to convince her not to go by then professing his love to her or like the possibility of love to her to then even further confuse her and i know that it's supposed to be like because like very soon she's gonna realize it's been him the whole time which yay but in that moment it's like king you're bad you need to stop (laughs) like let her fucking go like i don't care that you're well i do care like do not befriend this person for the sake of hopefully getting close to them and like romantically and then on the day that she's like she's invested vulnerable space with you and your response to that is what if we hadn't met that day what if we fell in love instead king step back like go home like don't don't like yeah it's so bad and i will say fully 100 percent, despite all of it at the end when she says i wanted it to be you so badly okay so you say blah i wept (laughs) i still think despite it all and i know it's bad and whatever but that line reading and meg ryan reading it like the way it's done in the movie despite its context that scene just by itself devoid of everything the way she says i want it to be you so badly yeah (sighs) i'm like yeah you wanted to be her so bad like it's just so like it's so it's so like emotionally validating where she's like i knew it but i didn't know but i wanted it to be you and i'm so yeah. happy it is and you're just like ugh. It's, i love it's, that for it's, you it's the yumminess of a silly romantic film like that's what it is and again i mean granted the first time i saw this with i didn't really like analyze it from being like a messy manipulative thing and that happened i'm just like perfect that is the best line reading of that line. <laughs> that is the best line for that scene. Meg mm-hmm. Ryan, queen of the world. This is amazing. And even this time with all of it in mind, when that scene happened, I was still like, yes, I'm so happy it was him. <laughs> like, it's so stupid. But I still want to shout out that line because that line, I still think is so good. I still stand by it. Despite Tom Hanks being bad. Let's talk about the Like, it's still, it's still it's worse than the first one. It is like a hundred percent worse than the first one. And yeah. it doubles down. Like, I mean, sure. He apologized that he wasn't there in the best way possible, but did he ever apologize for ruining her life? Cause he knew she like, I think she like messaged him that line that I said about losing her mom all over again and stuff like that. Right. Like he knows how fundamentally hurt that she was by him. Did he ever apologize for that? We don't see it, you know, but we also because he's so far removed from that CEO title by this point in the movie, because, again, they presented the idea and made sure that we knew. But then, like, we don't really see him in that capacity again. He's so far removed that we're like, oh, yeah, he really didn't do that. I mean, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't really him. Right. When even like that premise is predatory, which it wasn't in the first one. Right. But then there and there's more of an intimacy that we get to see these characters have through these messages because we actually get to like instead of being told, you know, about what they're writing each other. Right. Like we're like hearing them say like hearing them talk to each other. Right. We're seeing these messages. We're getting um, we're 
on this personal level with them and seeing, you know, um, their interactions and hearing what they're actually saying to each other. And then it's like double pronged predatory, right? Uh, as a business level and uh, which also fuck the Godfather. Um, I, <laughs> I hated that. I was like, this is the most man thing. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Her, but like, like going to the mattress punching. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. It was so, it was so bad. Again, another thing that I have not consumed. Um, but like, I was just like, you're going to go through this whole journey. You're going to go through this whole emotional fucking journey. And we're right here with you. We know you are actually telling us how you're feeling at every moment. And you're telling the other person how you're feeling at every moment. So how can this be okay? And so when I was watching this, I wasn't really like... I was more charmed by her employees than I was anybody. Um, yeah. I was like, why the fuck is he in your house? Why are you even still talking to him? Like, why? Now you're friends? What the fuck is this? Like, you wished it was him? Like, I would never fucking forgive this person. Ever. Yeah. I don't care. And like, and, Realistically, and, she shouldn't have. <laughs> she uh, really no, she should not have forgiven sh- this man. <laughs> she, she shouldn't have. I was taken out, like, immediately <laughs> with yeah. all of this. I was like, no, I can't. Um, and I know that this is iconic. And, like, maybe because I'm coming into this as somebody that doesn't have nostalgia for it because I didn't watch it before. Like, I don't have that. So, like, it's easier for me to the say, like, oh, we well. do this you podcast. Know. <laughs> <laughs> um, boom, 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 boom. But... But yeah, it was, I could not with this movie and it was like cringe at several moments and it um, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really hard for me. You mentioned something as well that I didn't really click until you said it about like, he didn't apologize for anything apart from like just not being there. That non-apology also shielded by the idea that he has no agency in being tied to a family that owns bookstores like i feel like they try to they try to reinstill this idea that like he doesn't really have a choice in the matter that he's like Mm -hmm. rich and whatever because like especially the way that they make him look by comparison to these two old like monopoly men like they're in like white shirt suspender like i'm old and he's like I'm just a family man. Like, yes. In a, like, they make it so clear that he's like, well, I have no choice. This is just, I'm and sons. I'm and sons. What am I supposed to do? This is just what I have to do. And it's like, th- the movie spends its entirety trying to convince us that he has no choice, but the choice he does have is her. And he's choosing her when, in fact, like, you can choose a different career. You can choose how you interact in this inherited wealth, in this inherited privilege, which also ties in to that scene when he pays for her fucking groceries, which makes Drives me, me so, which makes me so mad. Yes, because because the only reason it worked out is they're trying to reinstill the idea of male privilege, white male privilege, white cis male privilege yes. in its full spotlight. And to me, the only way that could have worked, and this is the part that, like, I'm like, not, I don't care, like. This scene did not work. The only way that it could have worked is if he did pay in cash. Like, if he abided by the rules of the line and he paid in cash and just, I did a nice thing, let's keep the line moving, I'm paying in cash, whatever, and didn't make it the cashier's problem and didn't make it anybody else's problem. He's like, hey, you're in a bind. Here's $175 to pay for your groceries in cash. I hope you have a great day. Move on. I would have been like, okay. But instead he's like, hey, little lady. I see you have a clicky clack machine here. I have a clicky clacky card here and you're really pretty. 
What are we going to do about that? And you're like, what is this? Like, that's so stupid. I about hate it. it. It's not a good scene. But the one thing that makes it worthwhile is shout out to the fucking gay in this scene being like, she has no cash. She has no cash. Like, can you believe she has no cash? This is a cash only line, ma'am. And then they're like, everyone's looking around. He's like, yeah, I know she has no cash. This girl has zero cash. <laughs> like, he's so on about the no cash thing. And it's so funny to me because he's just like some Brooklyn gay, like, excuse you. And I'm obsessed with it. Otherwise, it doesn't work. It makes no sense. It makes him more unlikable, but it's feeding us the lie that he is likable by showing us that like the the checker is like charmed by him. And I'm like, no, she we wouldn't be charmed by to, him. <laughs> no, we even it's have to have his like stepmom like make passes at him constantly to be like, oh no, he's like people want to people yes. want to fuck him. Like yes. I mean, like so yeah. it's it's just another. Another way where I feel like the writer is manipulating us into being like, yes. oh, bad guy, but not really bad guy. Like, let's remove this. Oh, this. Let's remove this. Oh, this well, is how you should feel. And that's how writing works, right? Whereas like, n- we are informing like the viewer or the reader on how we want them to feel about this certain character or this position, like, you know, whatever, right? However, <laughs> um, this, um, the writing in this, some at certain points does feel predatory like just like the story that is being told here and it's i don't (sighs) and i have a really hard time with that like it's another nora being nora unfortunately because she's also the credited screenwriter like this is like emblematic i feel like a lot of what she stands for just in terms of like storytelling um she's very good at a lot and i think she's really like but there are those levels that like of of rigid um, patriarchy and rigid class structures that will never not be affiliated with Nora Ephron. Like it will never not be ingrained in everything that she is, despite the like strong female and femme characters who are autonomous, who do have voices, who are complicated. Like those will always be staples of her work as well. However, those characters will still bow to the patriarchy. Those characters will still bow to the class structure, a class structure that will always benefit them because they are more often than not, and by more often than not, I mean 95% white. <laughs> like, that is just going to be the case with her films, unfortunately. And yeah. you were so right about all of that, Jess. And it is so off-putting, and it is so stressful because there are moments that I do want to be charmed by. I do want to eat up. Yes, I want it. And unfortunately, I can't have it because of these really glaring outlandish scenes that just are like, why are you lying to us? Like, this is not. No, like, stop it. Like, that's a lot. That's bad. And you can't tell me otherwise. (laughs) The thing that I did really like about this uh, or, like, you know, like, is really interesting is like how we use the Internet when it, you know, was first kind of like we were figuring out what we could or wanted to use it for and how we use it now. Like, you know, in terms of like now it's social media and everything's on fire and everything has like a uh, a chat feature. And I, I do kind of miss some of the anonymity, like because before it didn't feel dangerous, I guess. Like even though it's like, oh, well, this person could be a murderer or something like it felt less insidious and yeah. um, and it felt 
a little bit more genuine where like you didn't have because like you didn't have to always put your best foot forward or you didn't have to show that you were out doing the cool thing that everybody was doing or you know that you weren't missing out on this other thing like those days the neopets days this like i miss the gentleness of that I felt like there was so much more community and where now it's like every social media platform and every like messaging thing, not to like get on my soapbox or whatever, like, but now it's all either performative, like in terms of like you are performing for your friends and showing happiness and showing this or like you are consuming performativeness of others or they're literally just trying to sell you stuff and so like now in that it feels like impossible to even see the people that I want to see in these things because they're I feel like I'm just being bombarded with with just so much nothing all the time it's it's really Mm -hmm. overwhelming and has been very overwhelming for me so this film did make me really nostalgic for what it used to be and what it could have been we're we're a time (laughs) where where social media was not a necessity for anything it was a place you chose to go to if you wanted to like now and not to say necessarily that like social media is necessary but like as creative people Jess there is a level of like you can find connections that's how you like show off your stuff that's how you talk about your shows that's how you talk about your projects that's how you like it feels so disingenuous and it It, sucks and I hate it it so much and it is so disingenuous and that's the problem where like it isn't real. It is fake. But unfortunately, like, there is, like, oh, why don't you have a LinkedIn? Why don't you have a Facebook? Why don't you have an Instagram? Why don't you have Twitter? Like, there is a social stigma attached to the idea of being disconnected from these things that now are integrated and feel so needed or, like, expected in the same way that before, like, the nostalgia for the idea that, like, oh, you're on the Internet? Oh, you you do email? Like, that's, that's oh, wow. <laughs> Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's now flipped and it's it's frustrating because it's like, what if I don't want to be on? Like, what if I don't want to be present or like and put also, myself it's online? A, it can be a really dangerous place to be, especially if you have like any sort of like ideas that <sighs> maybe straight men, straight white men won't it's like, so <laughs> you know, about so like, <laughs> like, you know, these kinds of stories and stuff. Maybe not. Uh, you've got mail. I don't know if they have strong opinions on that. But yeah, it it's it's a very different place and i miss some of that gentleness yeah. and ease that i tim, had before our protagonist, how is it like how is it tim tell us how is well, being no, our off protagonist, the grid <laughs> <laughs> our protagonists met in an over 30s chat room and it's such a huge difference to go is the guy in the over 30s chat room a serial killer and to go pretty sure my cousin is a serial killer it's a totally different conversation <laughs> <laughs> like I like that level of distance. I feel like a conspiracy theorist in that I think that um, our social media as it is now reinforces social and class boundaries because you can't get away from the, I mean, like, heck, I live 600 miles from where I was born. And if I had social media still, I would only see their thoughts and opinions. And it it does kind of like bring you in and hold you close and kind of prevents you from meeting new people in this format, in my opinion. Um, but yes. yeah, I am totally off the grid. I do have like one last thing to delete. What I did in 2016, um, I just couldn't believe how all that went down. Uh, every six months or so, I deleted as a form of social media. I kind of like, first I deleted off my phone. After a few months, I'm like, okay, how, how am I feeling about that? How often did I check that? 
And then another three months I go, oh, I feel great. Let me pull all the photos, anything interesting. And then it's gone. And um, it's 2022 and I don't know. I don't have anywhere to get memes, but other than that, <laughs> it feels pretty good. <laughs> I'll send you all of the Star Trek, the good yeah. Star Trek memes, well, don't worry. We're back. Um, we did it. We made it back from the shop around the corner. We're here. We're feeling cute. I bought $75 worth of books and I was mad about it. Ooh. Oh my gosh. Because books are like so expensive and my shop is like so much cheaper. Yeah. Ugh. I'm sorry. You were in the cash only line. So. <laughs> Ma'am, it's cash only. She doesn't have any cash. Obsessed <laughs> with this man. Obsessed. He was so fucking funny. He was so funny and like such a little snot. And it was so fun. It was so fun. Ugh. To quote the protagonist in the first movie, this podcast has been a very interesting intersection between poetry and meanness. Ooh. Ooh I like that. Ooh, I'll take it. Ooh, you had wow. that saved. Thank you. That was gorgeous. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. okay. So we've made it here. The 1940s shop around the corner. Eric, who was this movie for? Um, uh, it was for uh, James Stewart. It was for James Stewart. Like classically, easily. I think this is an easy out for me, but I'm going to just say James Stewart because, I mean, famous movie star. That's who I think it was for. <laughs> Excellent. What about you, Tim? Um, outside of like film historians who have to watch it in order to get a credential, um, I think that this is a wonderful movie for catfishers and ghosts everywhere who have Ooh. disappeared on a relationship that meant something to them. And they were wondering what would happen if I continued my manipulative ways and wormed myself <laughs> in and fixed it. Like really though, not, not, not that all catfishers and ghosts are manipulative. I'm just saying this is their movie. Yeah. Oh, maybe also for the gays who love Judy Garland, watched it too many times and, you know, wonder what else they can watch. That's how <laughs> I ended up here. <laughs> um, I, I think it was for men. I think it was for men, uh, kind of in the same way that you just said, Tim, but where it's about like, what if there was this woman and what if I did meet her and she was hot? Like, I mean, what if, what if I could do that? What if I could be sensitive with somebody like right <laughs> off the bat? Wow. Like, <laughs> what if? So it's like, I think it's like a rom-com, but like specifically for men. Wow. Did you like it, Eric? Honestly, yeah, I did. I thought it was very charming despite everything we discussed, um, especially for films of that time. Not to say that like old movies are boring, but old movies are boring. And this one isn't. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Tim, did you like it? Um, I did. I I really enjoyed the like faster dialogue. I enjoyed like the interplay between characters. I feel like there's a lot more body comedy back then, and so like if you don't like let yourself get bogged down by the just general misogyny of it all, it can be just a really fun watch. Yeah, yeah. Jess, how about you? Uh, um, it's hard, right? <laughs> it's difficult. <laughs> I think it absolutely had a lot of charm for the reasons that we talked about with like the witty dialogue um, for Mars to check. 
I thought that um, Novak was incredibly cute, like, and I loved like that she felt empowered. But for me, all of that was just wiped away by the fact that she actually had no power and no autonomy, and like, I don't think at a certain point we like really saw her be stoked for herself like we see her in bed because this dude ghosted her right and she's only excited when she gets this letter like to me it almost felt like that's what she was living for like so I thought it was fine like even after talking about it I think it was fine I don't I think it's a really novel idea to use snail mail and have a pen pal that you kind of fall in love with I think that is a charming idea but I think the execution of it just is fine. Big yeah. fine. Big fine. Um, big if true, big fine. <laughs> what about um, the remake? Was it new, interesting, or the same? Progressive, regressive. How are you feeling about You've Got Mail? I think it's new, and I think it's interesting. Um, new, just, it's a new concept. It's the age of technology. I, I really like that as like a way for anonymous conversations, anonymous relationships. Um, in that same dichotomous, like they're in separate relationships and they're also in competing like big box chain bookstore, a uh, little shop around the corner, literally great. The only thing that I thought was regressive is them not only doubling, but tripling down on the manipulative portion of this film. Um, they really just said, oh no, we're fully doing it harder than the first. And you're like, oh damn, they really are. <laughs> so I think like, oh fuck, like he's really... He's really going for it. Damn. So <laughs> it's re- it's real <laughs> regressive in that way. Like it is it is so gross and messy for that reason. I mean, outside of that, I thought it was like a really good story. I thought it was really interesting and new, but that just big chunk, big chunk of character and plot. Woo! Yeah. Real, real messy. <laughs> um, Tim, what do you think? The call is coming from within the house. Like Tom (laughs) Hanks, if it was anyone other than Tom Hanks, we would be calling the police for her, right? But it's Tom Hanks, and we're like, ooh, we love him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say that it's regressive, but that's my opinion. And I'm saying it because it kind of, for me, exemplifies the way we've masked true emotions by finding a way to, like, hide it beneath like fake goodness like at Mm -hmm. least the problematic characters were obviously problematic and it was only through like a little bit of over analysis that we were able to be like oh this is why I feel good about Tom Hanks right now like really he's a CEO he's doing horrible things the impact on the world is bad so we know that we didn't even know Amazon was coming in to put him out of business yet but yeah, I'm going to say it's regressive because of that. And then, yeah, and even the um, the only LGBT portrayal was the nanny and the bisexual partner who's portrayed as a nymphomaniac. And uh, yeah, it's a little bit better than the, the kept man in the first movie, but um, I'm just going to say it's not the portrayals that I wanted in anyone. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I think that it was new. I don't think it was really interesting (laughs) because I don't think um, seeing a woman get fucked this hard and not the pleasant way uh, is interesting. I think it's a tragedy and I think it's awful and pisses me off a great deal. 
But I agree with you. I think it's regressive for all of those things. I think it's regressive because they are double, tripling, quadrupling down on like so many fucking levels to where like the story itself feels like a manipulation because it's like presenting this idea and then the erasure of it so that way you don't feel as bad or conflicted about this character or what it's doing and um this story you didn't have to make this the story if you didn't want us to think about that like this was a fucking choice and so these choices that were made um for me I'm like this is sloppy and sure, it's like you could argue that it's good because like you don't think about him as a CEO and you're like, oh, my gosh, look at they have so much chemistry, which they did and which was really cute, like when they were friends at the end. But everything that came before that and what he was still doing um, without her knowledge or consent behind the screen of his like giant ass fucking laptop, <laughs> you know, yeah. like <laughs> I um I have a really big problem with and I couldn't get past that. I couldn't get past her not having the purse. Her fucking bed moved in the middle of the movie. Like, because I remember looking at the oh bed God, really? when she's sitting on there with like her her boyfriend and I was like, wow, that should be close because like you like you see the whole thing fucking shake and it's like, wow, that's weird. And then when Tom Hanks comes in, her bed is like catty cornered on a corner thing and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, and like, so... I don't know. There was a lot of things that just really fucking took me out of this movie. And um, I don't think there was ever a point when I was really in it other than when it was her talking to her employees and hanging out with them. Yeah. But that's it. <laughs> that was the movie. <laughs> um, who do you think this was for, Eric? America Online. A hundred percent. It's like AOL City, baby. Like AIM. We got AIM. We got... You've got mail is literally the title. Like, we'll talk about branding. Hello, hi. Like, it is a movie for the brands. I mean, Do apart you remember from when they used to charge you by the hour, like, yeah. and like, oh my God. The, I remember Wild. all of the fucking like free hour, like thousand hours, like CD ROMs from AOL. Yeah. Oh, uh, we had by stacks. The hour. They would send us in the mail stacks. Um, yes. So AOL.com, shout the fuck out. You got a titular ad. Baby, like, go <laughs> off. Get your money. Um, AOL.com. I love that they still have, like, 4 million subscribers, like, active. Which is so wild to me because oh it's God. like AOL.com is the new global.net uh, Comcast. <laughs> like, it's insane. Okay, I do want to say this is a call-out post for our editor, Danny Barkley, who still has an AOL email. Does he? He does. <laughs> Danny. Um, so, and I know that that's the spam email, but that's the, that he also still checks it. So, um, this is a call out post. Um, we well, love you, but, uh, maybe think this... about your choices. <laughs> well, in full transparency, then I also still have an AOL.com, uh, <gasps> AOL.com account, but only this is because a call out post for you too. Seven what years ago, I tried to re-log in to delete it. And because it's not attached to any other account that I have, there's no way to reset the co the password, and I can't get back in to officially delete it. So it okay. still exists, and it's still technically active, okay. but I got locked out. But Danny still logs in daily. <laughs> yeah, there's no excuse for him. <laughs> he has no, no excuse. excuse. <laughs> 
Maybe maybe Danny's just waiting for that email from Shop Girl forty seven to come it's through. It's true. You know what? Maybe are you waiting? He's for waiting your for Shop that Girl? door sound. <laughs> okay, but I did get a little bit nostalgic for all the sounds. I, same, so, so super duper same, super same. Oh wow. Okay. So um, I'm just gonna answer. I you say it's for America online. I say it's for America. Ooh, okay. Super okay. patriotic. Wow. Because we all feel nostalgic for it. I look at that movie and it's like, I would watch it again tomorrow. I is it the best movie? No. Is it better than the last one? No. But I, you know, who doesn't love like depictions of New York in the winter? I've never been to New York, but you know, I get nostalgic when I see Meg Ryan drag that Christmas tree down the side. I'm not even Christian. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, will I rewatch this again? And will I cry when she says, I wish it was you so bad? Like, I will cry. Like, it will get me. I will watch it again. And it will hit me again. I love this. It's for the world. Of you. <laughs> it's for the world, not just America, the world. We the are world. the world. <laughs> I do we think are. that this is uh, for Daniel Barkley, our editor, um, <gasps> because he still has his AOL email address account. We love you. Um, I'll say another one just in case you don't want to run that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Who is this for? Um, I'm going to say, oh, obviously, um, Miss Rhode Island and Birdie and oh, George. This is for them. This is their. This movie really should have centered them. This movie should have been about them. Just just like the first one. Just put it in the shop, and I would have been sold. I would have been so good. That's what yeah. this movie should have been. Uh, Jean Stapleton. Uh, did you like it, Eric? I do. I like. I mean, it's a mess, and it's kind of fucked up. And like, yeah. Um, I'm still still a fan. Still got it. Oh, I'm still into it. Um, Still love it. I do. I think it's a great film. Tim. I think if you're wanting to watch one in this series, watch The Good Old Summertime with Judy Garland. If you're wanting to watch a Nora Ephron movie, go watch When Harry Met Sally or Sleepless in Seattle. If you've exhausted that content, this is the movie for you. Fourth choice. Fourth choice. Love it. Um, yeah. I did not like this movie. I will never watch this movie again. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this is a romantic story at all. And I yeah. hate it. Wow. <laughs> but I love and respect all of you for all of yeah. your opinions. I mean, I know um, where you're coming from completely. And, and to that effect, I also agree. But I think I'm I still... also have like rom-coms for me are also like I, I mean I do love lots of rom-coms that are problematic but like maybe not having that nostalgia for this one is different but like rom-coms are always hard for me because again it's like usually especially like you know before now um written by a man or to- like you are being told how you should want to be loved and romanced and you know that you should overlook all of these glaring problems like I yeah. I hate because so many women do reference these things when they're like, oh, but this was so romantic. Oh, he did this. It's so romantic. You know, like there's like the love bombing and there's like so. So it is It's a little bit of a tough genre for me. I'm a tough critic on it. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I think that's it. We did it. Yeah. Look at us. We did it. What a gorgeous and lovely and fantastic moment. Um, Tim, 
thank you so much for being here and spending the last three hours with us going through it all uh in such gorgeous and wonderful detail do you have anything you want to plug in any capacity that is whether it's a book some personal stuff whatever you want you can literally say anything right now gosh um you know uh I don't have any social media, so I can't plug that. I do have a P.O. box. If you want to anonymously write me a letter, we can start. To, I'm actually, I do have a P.O. box. I'm not going to give it out. Um, <laughs> I was going to be like, wow, how shop me. around the corner of you? <laughs> yeah, I was ready for it. I was going to do it. You know, I'm just a small town girl in San Francisco out there wanting to meet my golden retriever owning. I, I'm rambling now, but um, <laughs> I don't golden- have... <laughs> Your golden retriever twink. Sparkly thing. <laughs> I found it at Badlands. Oh my god. <laughs> so um, yeah, just plug anything. Maybe just you know go read a book. I love that. We That's love. Uh, we love a knowledgeable king. We love an educational king. Tolstoy, um, crime and punishment. You know, classics. Theme it. Miss Karenina, if you're nasty. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being here. This has been like such a wonderful conversation and I had the greatest time. I never thought that I would have so much to talk about regarding You've Got Mail. I know. Um, but this has been a delight. What a joy. <laughs> and uh, thank, you. thank you, everybody, for listening. Please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media wherever we're present. Our artwork and music is by Eric Lefebvre. Editing is by Danny Barkley. And thank you again for listening. And thank you, Eric and Tim. Thank you, Tim and Jess. Thank you for having us. And remember, stay cute. And stay critical. Good. Bye, 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 bye. Bye. Goodbye, goodbye. This podcast has been brought to you by the Nostalgia Network. Visit thenostalgianetwork.com for more. You enter the dungeon and see the evil wizard pointing his wand directly at you. He says, Show me a funny and delightful actual play Dungeons and Dragons podcast or I'll consume your souls! What do you do? I take out my phone and find Quest Friends Forever on Spotify. I show him how to find Quest Friends Forever on Apple Podcasts. I share the Quest Friends Forever Instagram and YouTube pages with them. And you all get critical hits! Yay! Quest Friends Forever is an actual play podcast starring four friends with varying levels of Dungeons & Dragons experience. Join us for new episodes every other Wednesday as we embark on fantasy adventures, play fast and loose with the rules, and laugh at each other's shenanigans. No prior D&D knowledge is required to listen, so everyone can feel free to join the fun. Quest Friends 4, that's the number 4, like how there's four of us, ever. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Quest Friends Forever.